our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 this morning. We'll be reading verses 27 through verse 35. But I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Isn't this one of the hardest passages in all the Bible? And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. Him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Hoping for nothing again. Your reward should be great. Ye should be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful. I want to preach on this thought this morning, Christianity in crisis. Most of Christianity lives in crisis. God has given us these commands as Christ preached this message to Sermon on the Mount. I can only imagine the conviction that sent in with every single word, every single phrase that was spoken. But this is Christianity. He not only goes through the list, but at the end of the list he says... So if we do these things, if we love to be loved, if we give to be given to, if we forgive to be forgiven, doesn't the world do that? That's why we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to produce something different, unnatural, something we can't produce on our own. It's not natural to love your enemies. It's natural to hate your enemies. But here's what you see in Christianity. If you go back, even in the Old Testament, when they didn't have a Bible, they didn't have a Holy Spirit, they didn't have a church, they had nothing in their favor. God occasionally spoke to them. They were still doing those things commanded in the New Testament, like loving their enemies. I think we can say David did that with Saul. I've had some people hate me, but I've never had anyone throw a spear at me. And then... After he had a spear thrown at him, he went back and played the harp again and he threw another spear at him. And he still went back to the palace and he still served. That's Christianity. How many of us can say truthfully, I love my enemies? You know, really, it pains us just to love those that love us. <laughs> you got a wife that loves you and you have trouble loving her and you got... People around you in a church that love you and you have a hard time loving them. And if we can't make it past loving those that love us, how in the world can we take the next step and love those that hate us, love our enemies? And then he said, love uh, seems too superficial just to say I love them, so let me help you out. Do good to them. I wonder if we took a poll, if we put your life on the big screen your last 30 days of living, how many can say truthfully, I have done good to them, repeatedly done good to them that hate me. I'm just looking for someone to hate me so I can do them good. It's not natural. Now, 
in every case, we can find a Bible example of a Christian that was listed. Joseph was thrown in the pit, hated by his brethren. They talked about killing him. It was Reuben that saved his life. Reuben did him a favor and sold him into slavery. Pretty good fella, huh? And years later, when Joseph could have been angry and frustrated and reacted and even had them imprisoned or killed or simply said, I'll let you starve to death. I won't sell you any grain. He showed love. Do good. We have a hard time doing good when the circumstances are perfect and there's money in our pocket and our health is good. And that person is being nice to us. If I told you this morning, hey, go out and do good to them, you might struggle because it would take you out of your routine. It would rearrange your afternoon. It would affect your pocketbook. And you like that person. You just don't want, want it to mess up your day. Christ said, hold on for a second. I'm not commanding you to do good to them to do good to you. I want you to do good to those that despitefully... Now think about this, because if you're a decent person, now if, if you're not a decent person, you probably have a lot of enemies. But if you're a decent person, your enemy list is pretty short. Oh, we like to blow it up in our minds, and Satan likes to rattle that one name around in our mind as if we had a whole army of enemies. Most of us, the enemy list is really short. But think about who truly is your enemy. Some of you can't even think of a name. But if there's someone out there who ever got a burden of their saddle and they were living, thriving off of vindictive spirit and they simply wanted to spite you and you knew it. God says, here's your retaliation. Do good to them. That's Christianity. But you know what normally happens? When someone reacts in spite our Christianity goes into crisis. Bless them that curse you. That's not our natural reaction. Now, honestly, we've had people say bad things to us occasionally. How many people have cursed you? I mean, like Shimmy, I did with David on the road. Come up, thou bloody man. This is a low life, a no life, yelling at the king. Maybe one of the greatest warriors that ever lived. Hey, come up, thou bloody man. What do you think his natural reaction was as a warrior? I mean, this man had killed Goliath with a slingshot. Okay, he knew how to kill men. He had actually killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. So his natural re reaction was a headlock, right? And he kept on walking. He said, God bless you. That's... Christianity. So someone is cursing you, using the most vile words that they can come up with. They're angry. Their face is red. They're screaming and belligerent. Now, I don't know if five people in this building have ever even been in that situation. But if you have, Pastor, what do I do? Well, you want to choice. You can let your Christianity go into crisis or you can do what God says to do. Just bless them. God bless you. You know what you just said to me? God bless Bless you for that. Doesn't that sound crazy? Doesn't all of this sound crazy? Now, let me ask you this. You're sitting there thinking, well, you know, if I was superhuman, if I were 
better stated, super Christian, possibly I could do this, but I am a human, and my human nature says, if someone curses at me, I may refrain, but inside, buster, I am letting you have it. And then when I leave, I'm still letting you have it. And if it's a 30-minute ride home, I'm still letting you have it. And I'm screaming at everything in the car and everything I wanted to say, now I'm rehashing it, and it's even better now than when I first thought it. And if I ever get a chance to say something, boy, you're going to get an earload. We're talking about one time. Listen, folks, can you honestly think of a time when someone spitefully mistreated you? Someone ever cursed you? I've had people really, really mad at me. But I don't know if I've actually ever had someone curse me. But if I have the opportunity, God's already given me a command. Bless them. And pray for them, which despitefully use you. Now, Pastor, I qualify for that one. Then you qualify for prayer. Because God said, if someone despitefully uses you, and it will happen. I remember the story of Moses and Miriam. He had a sister and a brother that were in a position of leadership. And they turned on him and undermined him. And God gave Miriam leprosy. And Moses immediately, what's to say that he did? Immediately prayed for her, saying, God, heal her. That's Christianity. That's real Christianity. And real Christianity doesn't go into crisis every time there is a crisis. If they ask, give not expecting. I know Christians that have gotten out of church and lived a better life because at some point they gave someone or lent something out and got it back, broken, messed up, used up. It was a $20 mower when you lent it out. And you wanted a $50 mower back when they returned it. Well, I can't believe what he did to my car. He spilled a Coke in it. So your Christianity went to crisis over a spilled Coke. You know what we do? We live, listen, we live as if there were no Holy Spirit, as if there were no Bibles, as if there were no Christ in Christianity. And instead of saying, I'm supposed to live on a different level, I have Christ in me, which means... I shouldn't go into crisis every time in life there's a complication, a problem, or someone mistreats me. Because we know we live in an imperfect world. Now, here's what happens. Pastor, how in the world do I do this? How do I land hoping not to receive? You've got to be kidding me. If I land, I, I, I want some interest on that loan. You should be children of the highest weight. It gets worse. He is kind, so our example is kind. Good, he's kind. I knew he's kind. Wait a minute. It's not finished there. Unto who? The unthankful and to the evil. Now, let me ask you this. Who do you direct your kindness to? You know what we do in life. Here's our motivation. Well, I gave that to him. He didn't even say thank you. So that's your motivation. You do that for a thank you? You forgive to be forgiven? You love to be loved. You know what marriage is about? I love you, so you're supposed to love me back. 
Much of what we do is selfish in motive. So I'm going to be a Christian so good things can happen to me. Let's get deterred and let's think about the life of Jesus Christ. So he's going to come down to this earth. He's going to give his life and shed his blood as a ransom for many. He's going to set the example. Did you know the Christianity you hear preaching TV and radio behind the pulpits of America is all about you and what God's going to do for you and how your life's going to get better and how you're going to be richer. And if you pray, God's going to do this for you. What if you pray and nothing happens? And how if you sow when people are going to get saved? What if you sow when no one gets saved? And all our Christianity revolves around something called selfishness where I'm in this for me and let's see what God can do for me and the church can do for me and people can do for me and I'm going to love you, but... I want you to know this love is to reproduce love in you for me. And I'm going to forgive you, so you need to forgive me. And the next thing you know, we're using Christianity as a lucky charm. He loved the unthankful. Now, here's what it says in this chapter. I hope you're there. Luke chapter 6. Look what it says in verse 1. It came to pass on the second Sabbath. Think about this. Jesus Christ leaves heaven. Comes to the earth. That's called a step down. Did you know Christianity for you might be a step down? Did you know tithing may mean a step down? Giving to missions may mean a step down. Going soul winning may mean a step down. Helping others may mean a step down. We want Christianity to mean for us a step up. I know this isn't the power of positive thinking. I know this isn't what you're going to hear on television. I know this isn't a pleasant thought, but this is actually Bible. So he leaves heaven, he comes to the earth, he goes into the ministry, he's out there winning the lost, he's given his life. Let's watch the reaction. Everyone is just loving on him. The crowds are just thrilled. No enemies. This is the Messiah. Now hold on for a second. This is the Messiah. This is God in the flesh. This is someone that cannot make a mistake. Never says anything wrong, nor in the wrong tone. Never with the wrong motives. Everything he does is perfectly done and properly done. You would think someone that was perfect would be loved, appreciated, and thanked. Right? So let's see what happens. He's walking around because, number one, he doesn't have a house. He doesn't have his own bed. He doesn't have his own mule. He doesn't have his own ride. He doesn't even have his own table. He doesn't even have regular income. How's he going to get food? So he's walking around with his disciples. It came to pass on the second Sabbath, after the first, that he, Christ, went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. Now, that's not a delicious meal. I wouldn't criticize someone for doing that. I would actually feel sorry for them. I think the good thing to do would be to say, listen, if you're that hungry, you've got to walk through a cornfield, pluck off an ear of corn, rub it in your hands, and eat. You need to come over to my house for dinner. Hold on for a second. Where was the sin in that? Where was the wickedness? Where was the depravity? And certain of the Pharisees said to them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? He can't even eat corn without being criticized. Verse 6, and it came to pass also on the other Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. He had a crowd following him around just to accuse. How would you like that? 
You know what that does to your blood? You know what that does to you? It gets you all riled up. An accusation? And guess what the accusation is? I bet you heal someone on the Sabbath. Oh, you don't want to do that. Make a man better? Give him a better life? Help him out on the Sabbath day? Listen, can this man win? Can Jesus Christ do anything right in their eyes? Look what it says, verse 11. They were filled with madness. Did you know there are going to be people in life that are just filled with madness? And you're going to run across them, and you get to deal with them, and how you react is a revelation of your Christianity? And if you have a Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, the fruit of the Spirit is still love, joy, peace, long suffering, patience, meekness, kindness. Don't you love that list? That means a crisis shouldn't put your Christianity in crisis. Look at who they're condemning. Look at who they're accusing. Verse 12, it came to pass in those days, he went out to a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So they're sitting around criticizing him, attacking him, belittling him, finding a way to accuse him, and at some point they'll come up with enough lies to actually crucify him. But meanwhile, he's out on a mountain praying all night long. How many of you have ever done that? So I think he can actually stand up and say, love them that hate you, because that's what he was doing. Pray for them, spitefully use you, that's what he was doing. Wait a minute. It gets better, verse 13. When it was day, he called to them his disciples. And of them he chose 12. And let me ask you this. Was this God in the flesh? Was he all-knowing? Couldn't he have picked 12 people that would simply love him? He knew man's mind. He could have found 12. And let me ask you this. When he got these 12, did he pick 12 that loved him? 12 with few faults, loyal followers, faithful disciples. Uh, should we go through the list? Oh, look at the first one on the list, Simon. Oh, yeah, that's the same one that three times said, I don't know him. I do not know that man. Thomas, the one that wouldn't believe, that's the doubter. James and John, yeah, those are the two that said, hey, why don't we just call down fire from heaven and kill all these people at one time? Just burn them, just fry them to a crisp. Don't you think at some point we should start doubting his choices? Oh, look at the last one on the list, verse 16. Judas Iscariot, which also was the... Yeah, that's the one that's going to sell you for 30 pieces of silver. Let me ask you something. Do we ever see his Christianity in crisis? So he lived the message he preached. That whole list of things that he said he actually did. Now let me ask you this. Because there's a secret here. There's a key here found earlier in Luke chapter 6 that we bypassed when we read the scripture. This sermon at the mount starts in verse 20 when it says he lifted up his eyes. 
on his disciples. He said, blessed be ye poor. Now, this is a shortened version of what we see in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. This is speaking of the poor in spirit. Blessed are ye that hunger now, speaking of those that hunger after righteousness. But look what it says in verse 22. Blessed are ye when men shall... Hey, wait a minute. Now, he was speaking to the Jews, knowing that if they followed him, they would be cast out of the temple, and the temple was a way of life for the Jew. It was a general rejection, not just by family, but by society. He said, blessed are ye when men shall hate you. So if you get born again, if you follow me, you're going to be hated. Blessed are ye. And when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, blessed are ye. I'm just not getting it. Do you understand anything in this? So wait a minute. Love my enemies. Do good them that hate me. Bless them that curse me. Turn the other cheek. Give to every man that asketh. How do I do that? Verse 23. Rejoice in that day. In what day? The day that they hate me? The day that they separate from my company? Reproach me and cast out my name. Rejoice in that day? Wait a minute. There's a second command. Leap for joy. You've got to be crazy. He said, jump for joy. We're supposed to rejoice and leap for joy. Now, here is the key. Look what he says. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. That's what we don't like. You know the biggest shock of the average Christian's life? He hears the Bible preach, he reads something, he goes to church, and the pastor stands up and preaches a great message. He walks out and says, boy, I'm going to do that. But thinking everything that's spoken in that book and preached in that book and taught in that book is going to come with an earthly reward. And that's our motivation. So the greatest moment of our life when it comes to shock in the Christian life is when we do something and there's no earthly reward. Wait, I prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happened. I'm done praying. So your motive was? He said, wait a minute. How many ever loved someone and after you loved them, they hated on you? And you said, what's up with this? You know why? You were looking for an earthly reward. How many ever took a bad situation and said, okay, I'm going to be the bigger person. I'm going to be mature and I'm going to return good for evil. And you buckled down, controlled your flesh, kind of, superficially. You said, I'm going to do the right thing because I'm a better person. So, you do right thinking it's actually going to change anything or something. How many of you have ever done something thinking doing right will change that person or that situation? And it didn't. Then what did you say or what did you think? That wasn't worth it. You got to be kidding I'm tithing and giving to missions. I got less money now than I've had before. So I'm doing right, and I'm making sacrifice, and I get into the ministry, and now I got people griping about me. It takes me eight hours out of my week and money out of my pocket, and I'm loving on them, and they're griping at me. you got to be kidding me. The problem is we don't understand the most basic principle in Christianity. Your reward is, I just shot your Christianity. Like, why in the world am I even going to bother? 
Christianity goes into crisis because most of Christianity, especially in 2012, is based on an earthly reward. So as long as we see it, as long as we can touch it, as long as we can hold it, as long as we can feel it, as long as there's something tangible that comes with doing right, I stay motivated. So if I feel good at church, I'll go. If I'm stirred, if it's a blessing, if I'm encouraged, I'm going to be there. What if you go and nothing happens? What if you tithe and you don't get a raise? What if you give and have less? What if you participate in a ministry and lose friends, the few you have? What if you follow God and your whole family hates you for it? You know what we want? Christianity in 2012 is reward-based, and it's an earthly reward that sets. If I can't see it, feel it, touch it, taste it, have it, I'm not motivated, and it's revealed in our Christianity because you know how we serve God in the areas of visible reward. So we do something. Oh, I'm getting thanked over here. I'm going to keep doing that. When's the last time you did something for a long, long time and never got thanked? And you kept on doing it? You got berated and belittled, cursed instead of blessed. And you said, that's not a problem. My reward is in heaven. You know those same people that we talked about uh, that did right in the Old Testament without the Bible, without the Holy Spirit, without a church? Do you remember? Go to Hebrews chapter 11, that book that talks about them. And it says that they were searching, they were looking, they were waiting for the promise. And many of them died without ever having received the promise. They were living on a promise. This goes against the grain of today's Christianity, which says you serve God for you. You do right for you. This is why marriages are falling apart. You get in, Mike, love her, love her, love her. You know what's going to happen? She's going to love you. What if she doesn't? You love people before and they didn't love you back. Forgive her. And if you forgive her, she'll forgive you. She might not. Bless him and he'll bless you. Doubtful. You know what we do? We go to work. We put Christian principles in practice and then expect them to respond if they were, as if they were Christian. And they don't. And when they don't, we say, well, I'm done being a Christian. They're not Christians. They don't have a Holy Spirit. They don't read this book. They don't. Listen, think about how carnal we are going to church three days a week. They don't even go. Think about how carnal we are with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And they don't have the Holy Spirit. But we think by doing something that's Christian, we're going to make them Christian. Christianity will go into crisis when you think what I do should bring about an earthly reward. Much of what I do, there is no visible, tangible, earthly reward. I have to say, for what I did this week, what I did this morning, what I did last night, what I do today, my reward is in and the bottom line is, earthly rewards are very hollow. I love watching these kids, and I love all the work involved. And I, I love Summer Olympics that we used to go to and regional jamborees and Bible quizzes and all these things. But it's funny, all the work and all the effort and all the dedication, all the sacrifice, and in the end, they walk up there, they get this ribbon. They put it around their neck. 
and they wear it in a pizza hut. And the lady at the counter says, wow, that's beautiful. Where have you been? Jamboree. What's jamboree? All those ribbons, they don't even know your name. They don't even know what you won. And you tell them what the competition was? What's the rubber raft relay? And then you go home and you put it on the table the next day. And then Monday goes in the bottom of a drawer. You know rewards, earthly rewards are pretty hollow. You know, you go to work, and you get a paycheck, and you're happy, and then five days later, it's spent. Uh, how long did that pat on the back last? Yeah. Your boss gave you a pat on the back two weeks ago. That lasted all for two days. We love the earthly reward, and all they do is sustain us from moment to moment, and we are asking God, God, I'm going to serve you, but I want you to know here, my motivation is earthly, so give me something earthly. And God says, your reward is in you get to miss hell. You don't have to burn forever. You're never going to experience outer darkness. You get to walk on streets of gold. You get to enjoy the glories of heaven eternally. So when you do right and the world still does wrong, remember your reward is in... But I prefer an earthly reward, do you? Let me see, you would trade... What this world has as a reward, a position. Let's talk about one of the world's most famous names, Michael Jackson. Everyone coveted what he had, fame. What about record sales in a house? Now let me ask you this. There's a man that died without Christ. He's burning in the eternal torments of hellfire right now. Let me ask you, would you trade his life and his earthly reward for his destination? Let me ask you, if that man lived on drugs, maybe all of his earthly rewards were a lot more hollow than we realize. You know as well as I, any earth reward that you had 20 years ago, 20 months ago, 20 minutes ago now is most likely gone. You know what you're waiting for? The next reward. So all that satisfaction you thought a, a, a reward would bring. And listen, if you get in the ministry for rewards, you know what you're going to have? Headache, responsibility, frustration, people complaining about this and complaining about that and it costs you money here, and it costs you money there, and it takes up more time than you ever imagined, and at the end of the day, you're saying, could someone at least give me a pat on the back? And then if your motive was a pat on the back, you know what you do next? You quit. And if you go soul winning for an earthly reward, then you quit. And if you pray for an earthly reward, then you quit. And if you serve God for an earthly reward, then you quit. Bible says this, Seek ye first, this was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God first. you got to say, if I'm seeking the kingdom of God, I better understand this is all about a heaven reward, a reward in the heavenlies. My reward is where? Oh, I thank God for the earthly benefit. I thank God for the friends that I have. And I thank God for the way he's taking care of me. And I thank God for the vehicles I drive and the house that I own the house that I'm paying for. And I thank God for the clothes and the food and the trips. And I thank God for everything that I have. But if that's the basis of my motivation, I would have quit a long time ago. 
my reward is in heaven. And here's when you quit, when you don't understand, I've got to seek first the kingdom. Now, here's what we've got, got to understand in seeking first. Let me ask you this. How many of you ever been to the doctor? A few of you. How many of you want to go in to a doctor? We understand he ought to seek first the welfare of his patient, right? How many say, when I go to a doctor, that's what I want him to seek first? But there's conflicts of interest because there's a clinic money involved. I want a doctor to seek first my welfare. Well, now, what happens if he just moves my welfare from first to second? You've been there. What did you think of that clinic? What did you think of that doctor? If his first priority is a pharmaceutical company, if his first priority is money, getting money out of your pocket, if his first priority, listen, you, you say, listen, I just don't want to be moved down one spot on the list. I kind of want to be number one. Well, where are you going to find medicine in this nation where you're actually number one, first priority? You're still looking. You know where you go to, what hospital you go to, what clinic you go to, where you're at least closer to the top? And God says, how far am I down the list? You know why? We've moved him down the list because ultimately, instead of saying, I'm doing this always to please my father, I'm doing this for a heavenly reward. We are so caught up in this life, worried and concerned about an earthly reward that our Christianity is absolutely run on the flesh saying, I need something tangible to even go forward. Verse 47, whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. Now, what's his point in this? Your reward is where? So you love your enemies because what? Your reward is in heaven. You don't love your enemies so that they love you. They most likely will never love you. You love your enemies because God commanded you to love your enemies because your reward is in heaven. Verse 48. He's like a man which built a house. Dig deep. Laid the foundation on a rock. When the flood arose, the steam beat vehemently upon the house. Could not shake it. Mark that phrase. Could not shake it. First found it upon a rock. Now you know the story. You know what we're talking about. So there's a storm. This man's built a house. That house has a right foundation. It's a rock. And because of that, the storm couldn't shake this man or his house. Now there's another side. Verse 49, but he that heareth and doth not is like the man that without a foundation, he built a house upon the earth. This is the foundation of most Christianity. You know what our service is built upon? The earth. You know what your marriage is built upon? The earth. I want an earthly reward out of this marriage. So she better love me. She better serve me. She better forgive me. She better help me. She better be faithful. She better be what I expect her to be. You're going to be disappointed in marriage. You know, Christians are living disappointed with God, disappointed with service, disappointed with prayer, disappointed with doing right, disappointed with soul in it, disappointed with church, disappointed with clubs, with school, with teaching, with preaching. Christians all across this planet are living disappointed and quitting because they've been told repeatedly, even by those preaching in our pulpits, that Christianity is about an earthly reward. 
So they built their whole house. They built their whole future. They built their whole ministry upon an earthly reward. Now, here's what's going to reveal what your Christian life is upon. Look what it says. They built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, here's what reveals our motives. Storm. Now, let me ask you this. This morning, we're going to be done. Sooner or later in life, you're going to have a storm beats down on your faith. It's going to test everything you've been told and everything you believe. Here's what separates those that fall apart and those that stay strong. When your Christianity says, my reward is in heaven. And if I don't get any reward out of preaching this message or pastoring this church or running this ministry or going soul winning yesterday or preaching at the nursing home, you're going to quit the nursing home if your reward is expected on the earth. And you're going to stop preaching in the prisons if your reward is expected upon the earth. And you're going to stop teaching in the school and stop working in clubs and stop knocking on doors and stop coming to prayer meetings. And you're going to stop tithing. You're going to stop giving to missions because you started thinking this. If I increase my faith promise, God is going to increase my income. Maybe not. And if I teach in the Christian school, then God will bless. Maybe not. Because God's not so concerned about the earthly like we are. God says this earth is full of aches and pains. But here's the promise I'm giving you. Think about eternity for a minute. I mean, after 800,000 years, we're just getting started. One billion years in. It's just beginning. So you want a gold star, a gold chain, Gold medal for that. Pat on the back. A hooray, hurrah. You're good. That's amazing. Praise the Lord. He's unbelievable. That's fantastic. That's good. At least a text. A phone call would have been great. It would have been great for Tuesday. But when you live like that, what's going to sustain you on Wednesday? What's going to pull you through on Friday? How are you going to make it through in a month when everyone all around you is complaining about the type of person that you are. You have to say, I live in a sin-cursed earth. My reward is in the heavens. Amen. 